Hello there, Cerebus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, the dichotomy between Israel and Iran's PR in light of a number of foreign policy successes, Lithuania upping the ante in Eastern Europe, and the prospect of water wars in the future. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news and it's rapid this time so we have unrest in iran over water shortages well that leads me to the major topic that we'll be talking about at the end of the episode prospect of water wars but there was unrest in iran over water shortages and it made me think about water and how important it is to people and will people fight over it that's a question that i will attempt to answer towards the end of the episode. We have the UK and the Israeli foreign ministers promising to work day and night to stop Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Now this uh, comes during a massive push. I guess this entire time there's been sort of a massive push to get Iran back to the nuclear deal that was negotiated before Trump undid it. So there was a major push to get them to go back. Iran has chosen not to. And they're at a a real standstill here. Uh, So there's that. And now UK and Israel promising to stop them from getting nuclear weapons. Although I will say that Iran has supposedly been on the verge of getting nuclear weapons for like a decade now. So... I don't know if they're any closer now. Well, they probably are, but are they as close as many make it out to believe? Probably not, if past record has anything to show for us. But that's the UK and Israel coming together on this one. Then there's Iran, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan. Now, what have these three countries done? They have signed a deal on a transnational sale and movement of 2 billion cubic meters of natural gas. So Turkmenistan has done a deal with Azerbaijan to sell them gas, but the catch is that there is no infrastructure for that gas to go straight from Turkmenistan to Azerbaijan. So that's where Iran comes in. Iran comes in. They do have the infrastructure to get gas from, not not from Turkmenistan to Azerbaijan. There's no connection still. But Iran has natural gas and they have connections to Azerbaijan. So what happened with this deal was it was an agreement for basically an energy swap where Turkmenistan would sell its natural gas to Iran and that would effectively be the barter for Iran to then sell an equivalent amount of its own natural gas to Azerbaijan as though the gas came from Turkmenistan that's a deal so it sounds a little complicated but it's kind of simple at the same time so because they can't get the gas straight from Turkmenistan to Azerbaijan Iran is the intermediary, so Turkmenistan sends gas to Iran that is basically used as a credit to send an equal amount of Iranian natural gas to Azerbaijan, so it functions like a deal where Azerbaijan is getting Turkmenistan natural gas, but Iran is the intermediary that makes this possible. And my response, genius, pretty genius. Look at Iran. Uh, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? They, they're the dominant power of the Middle East right now. And they're, this is a pretty big success. Pretty, 
a very major success. And again, my response is genius. They have solved the problem of their neighbors and have made their neighbors dependent on them for a key piece of their economies. For Turkmenistan, the sale of its natural gas to a new willing customer. And for Azerbaijan, they get their natural gas from Iran. So Iranian energy benefits and the Turkmen's get the money because they sell their gas to Iran and then Azerbaijan wins because they get natural gas that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get uh, courtesy of this deal. So it's pretty big for the region and it's a pretty big win for Iran. Iran is the big winner here on top of being the big winner everywhere else in their immediate neighborhood. They are the dominant power of the Middle East. So there's that. That was a very interesting story that I came across and I am impressed. I am almost as impressed as I was when Thailand, I believe it was, started a project to where they would basically store liquid natural gas to sell it to Asia during periods when natural gas was hard to come by, effectively making themselves a energy hub in Asia despite not having energy themselves. I thought that was genius. I still do think it's genius. And so this is sort of up there with the, the plays, the pl absolute plays that really show what a little bit of creativity can do for you in geopolitics and how you can reshape the scene around yourself if you're smart and use even things that you don't have to your advantage. It's very, very interesting when you see things like this. And nowadays, it gives me things to talk about on the podcast. So I guess we're all winners, aren't we? Uh, but Israel has opened up immigration to Israel from... Well, they open up to immigration from about 3,000 Jews who are currently living in Ethiopia. They're opening themselves up to immigration of those 3,000 peoples uh, because Ethiopia is in a civil war. And bad things happen when you have fighting like that. And Israel has opened the door. I'm pretty sure the 3,000 Jews living there appreciate that. Um, well, is it an attempt at repairing their PR in light of the Palestine debacle? Probably. Will it work? Somewhat. I'm pretty. I'm sure those 3,000, if they take the offer, that is, I'm sure they'll be willing to look the other way for a little while. Everyone else, uh, the jury is out on that. But that's Israel. Sudan has reported that six soldiers have died in a border skirmish with Ethiopian militias uh, over farmland in a disputed territory along their border which they still haven't really settled so now they're fighting over it uh, because this is exactly what those two need right now and that uh, one of them went through a, a coup that is sort of being slightly undone slowly progressively as the military is devolving power back to a civilian government and they averted a crisis with their declaration. So Sudan, right off the heels of yet another political crisis, is now in a border conflict with Ethiopia, who is in the middle of a civil war right now. Uh, this, uh, this is exactly what the two of them needed right now, isn't it? Uh, they're, they're in a bit of a mess right now, but at the very least, it's not as bad as it could have been. Uh, we talked about destabilization and the like. Uh, in past episodes so at the very least we can say that this is as good as it gets for the time being so there's that China way over on the other side of the the Eurasian landmass China has made incursions into Taiwanese airspace uh, you, you more of them and this time with reportedly 27 warplanes uh, sparking more fears rightfully so, that there could be a conflict between China and Taiwan. I believe that there will be, whenever China feels that they're ready. 
because I'm pretty sure they have the capabilities to do so now and probably did a couple years ago at the bare minimum. I think they're just crossing T's and dotting I's at this point to make sure that everything goes smoothly because if they can do it swiftly, then they can focus all their attention on keeping the island, not keep keeping others away from the island and trying to take it simultaneously. So, I believe that there will be a conflict over there, over the fate of Taiwan, and I think Taiwan and everyone who backs them are going to lose and lose badly. That's what I believe. Will I be wrong? We'll have to wait and see. But for the time being, I think people are right to be worried about potential conflict there. And that's China and Taiwan, whose relations have gotten worse with each other. But interestingly enough, Taiwan has getting has been getting a lot more uh, foreign support these days, with a lot of other countries starting to send envoys to Taiwan, and even offering the prospect of recognition of Taiwan as an independent country. Now, is that nice for Taiwan to have? Yes. Will it matter in the end if China sends the boots to the ground on Taiwanese soil? Probably not. But it's something. The Taiwanese will take what they can get. They have to buy time to where they can even theoretically defend themselves against the Chinese, and that's probably going to be a guerrilla campaign, if we're all being honest with ourselves about Taiwanese prospects for independence, they're going to have to fight the guerrilla campaign. There's no way around that. They're not going to be able to keep the Chinese from getting onto Taiwan. There's Because planes and helicopters exist. Planes and helicopters exist. Parachutes exist. There are parachutes strong enough. They, they have like little rockets on them that are able to deploy tanks. The Russians have them. The Russians know how to use them. The Chinese copy everything the Russians have. I'm pretty sure the Chinese have those sorts of um, those sorts of planes that can carry tanks and then the parachutes that can make sure that the tanks land safely. I'm pretty sure the Chinese have that and they're probably even debating whether or not they'll use them. Taiwan is not going to be able to keep the Chinese from getting boots on the ground and they're not going to be able to keep them from establishing a beachhead and probably won't even be able to stop them from getting a port. if. If we're all just brutally honest with ourselves about Taiwan's prospects here, they're going to have to fight the guerrilla campaign. It's going to be urban. They're going to have to fight in the mountains in central Taiwan. They're going to have to fight in the jungles. They're going to have to dig tunnels under the entire island and do it Vietnam style. They're going to have to pull out all the stops, and it's going to have to be low-tech. It's going to have to be low-tech. Otherwise, they're going to bleed themselves dry with money. Um... Uh, and they're not going to be able to fight the fight. That's Taiwan's prospects. I don't know if they've come to terms with that yet. Hopefully they will. For those who care deeply about Taiwanese independence, hopefully they will. Me, I'm a bit removed, so it's sort of a meh issue for me. My problem is whether or not we, get, we choose to get involved in that war, because it's not something we get dragged into. Um, but that's Taiwan. Those are their prospects. We'll see if they catch on to that and if they're willing to commit to that. Because that's another thing. They can catch on to the fact that they're going to have to fight like animals. Almost literally in that sense. They can catch on to that. And I'm pretty sure there are theorists and people in the Taiwanese high command who view it that way. But will the Taiwanese people come to terms with and accept that and follow through? That's another question that'll be interesting to see when the time comes. So, we'll, like every other Flashpoint, we'll keep our eyes on this situation uh, and hope, hope that it doesn't blow up. Although this one in particular, I'm pretty sure will blow up just because uh, China... And their whole shtick is national unity. You can't have that without Taiwan. That's my additional two cents on the Taiwan issue. But now, now we move on 
from that to the UAE, who is currently set to release over 800 prisoners in a good a gesture of goodwill in the lead-up to the country's 50th National Day. There were protests in Greece over the growing U.S. military presence, so that's not something you see a lot from countries in Europe, although they, they'll complain about it, they won't really protest the growth of U.S. military bases. And Greece is an interesting one, because Greece is leaning on America and France and the EU to keep Turkey from steamrolling them, but now they're protesting U.S. military base. And it's probably just because the population isn't 100% either way. There are probably plenty of people who don't want to see the U.S. there, but as well as there are people who really do want to see the U.S. there. And of those portions of the population, we can tell where the protests are probably coming from. But it's an interesting that these happened in Greece. So there's that. Um, I'm right there with them. I, I don't think we should be expanding our military presence there either. This is a hot point. This is a, a flashpoint. The Eastern Mediterranean is a flashpoint. And as I mentioned before, when we were talking about Britain and France in a previous episode, uh, just because it's gone quiet for now doesn't mean that the Eastern Mediterranean is not a flashpoint. It'll pop back up again. And the Turks will not leave it alone. Although we'll have to keep our eyes on Turkey as well, their currency is collapsing, and we'll have to see what that does to them. Because economic situations, when they go bad, that opens the door to extremes. Now, sometimes those extremes are good. Like in the case of good old America. When we, when we had our economy strangled by the British uh, during the war, and in the lead up to it, we ended up as a libertarian society. But they could also go the route of, say, France, where economic conditions got worse and they started cutting people's heads off. They, or in the worst case scenario, they can go the route of Russia or Germany, where a dictator st steps up and they start going to war with their neighbors with a radical ideology behind them as well. Like uh, that, 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 that could also be potential way that this goes we'll have to see because um, I don't know if they'll be able to keep the lira alive they might just need a whole new currency by the time this is over that's Turkey Russia on in the neighborhood has strong-armed its unofficial provinces of Armenia and Azerbaijan to properly define the border with each other a border that the Russians are policing between them to keep them from shooting at each other which has been, for the most part, successful. There was one skirmish, but it ended. No one was hurt. There are also major protests in Jordan over the energy deal struck between them and Israel, uh, which seems to me, from what I was able to gather, was a part of a larger opposition to the normalization of relations with Israel, uh, with some even going as far as to say that normalizing relations with Israel was treason so there's that and israel and morocco have signed a deal enabling morocco to purchase weapons from israel so there's that then there's a gold rush in brazil which has drawn hundreds to the deep interior of the amazon uh, and the government in brazil doesn't know what to do about it so there's that but i said we we're going to talk about the dichotomy of Israel and Iran, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Alrighty, I have separated the segments so now I can organize them better. But now, we're going to talk about Israel and Iran. Uh, specifically, the dichotomy of their public relations. Because over the course of the Rapid Fire News segment, I brought up a number of things between Israel and Iran. Uh, deals that have been signed. Um, but now we, well, I want to look at the difference between sort of the responses here. So let's just get into that. There was Israel and UK promising to stop Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. That is a slightly positive PR because people are afraid of Iran getting nuclear weapons. Iran signs deal with Armenia and, not Armenia, 
with Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan over a gas exchange. And that is genius. Israel opens itself up to immigration from the 3,000 Jews living in Ethiopia. Pretty good. The UAE, no, not the UAE, on my mistake, Jordan protests energy deal with Israel uh, and protests normalizations with Israel. And then Israel and Morocco sign a deal, enabling Morocco to purchase weapons from Israel. So what we have here is a difference sort of in the aims as well as the nature of their public relations and foreign policy. Israel, every time it reaches out, there's sort of a, a stain on them, courtesy of the Palestinian issue, which is still unresolved, to the point where, even though they sign multiple energy deals with Jordan, they have people in Jordan who are going to be benefiting from those energy deals, protesting it. They protesting Israel and saying no to the deal don't normalize relations with Israel. Even though there's clear benefits to doing so, they don't want to do it. Because they don't like what Israel's doing to the Palestinians. And, well, th that's what some of them... Others just don't like Israel. If we're also honest on this one, a lot of people sort of go blank on the issue of Palestine. And they use it when it's convenient and then leave it alone. That is the nature of how the Middle Eastern nations have treated this, namely the Muslim and Arab nations. They've sort of left the issue alone until whenever it flares up and they can use it to sort of sort of shit on Israel a little bit. But that's what happens. And that's what happens. Meanwhile, when Iran makes a deal, people are willing to talk. Even these days, Arabia who is trying to sort of have a rapprochement with Iran and is pulling back from places like Syria and is trying to hold the line in Yemen with marginal success. And we'll really have to see where the war in Yemen goes. I believe the Houthis are still going to win, but it's definitely going to be a bit more bloody for them than, say, the Taliban walking over Afghanistan. But Arabia's pulling out. Iran is now free to maneuver because Israel's tied down by their internal problems with Palestine. Arabia is reconsolidating their position. Turkey is preoccupied with a number of things internally with their economy as well as Ukraine. So, all the major rivals and would-be competitors to Iran are preoccupied. To their, to their east, you have Afghanistan, who just finished a civil war. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to do anything to Iran. Iran is free to maneuver. On top of the gains that they already made during those times of competition between their neighbors... And they emerged as the dominant power. Now they make deals. But in spite of being the dominant power, which would garner the ire and, well, a response from their neighbors, the neighbors that would do that and would sponsor coalitions to do that are preoccupied. Iran gets a free hand when they make deals. And when they make deals, they're not tainted by people protesting them. When Israel, the former dominant power of the Middle East, when Israel makes a deal, they get protested. <laughs> they get protested everywhere they go, and they have to they have to fight the public relations of just existing at this point. And one of the ways that they've found to get around that is by selling weapons and weapons contracts and development deals. Whereas Iran is focusing more on economics. So there's a, a difference between the pursuit that they have in their foreign policies 
which coincides with the difference in everyone else's perception of their foreign policies. It's a very interesting thing to observe. And I just just wanted to bring that up because I noticed it while I was gathering the news. And, well, not only did it feed into a number of other observations I had regarding Israel and the Palestinian issue bogging them down, but it also reaffirmed my belief one, that Iran was the dominant power, even more than I already thought. But it also reaffirmed my belief that they had room to maneuver, but I didn't expect this much room. That's This is a really vast area they have, and it's basically in every direction. They're making deals with Afghanistan. They're making deals with Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan. Their main sphere of influence stretches from their western border with Iraq all the way through to the coastline of the Mediterranean in Lebanon. So, and then you have the Houthis who are winning the war slowly but steadily. Iran has a very, very vast sphere of influence. So, I wasn't expecting them to have so much room to maneuver, but they have. I, th- I figured that they would be checked by somebody but their opposition is tied down. So they're sort of just snowballing at this point. Um, We'll see if that changes, but it doesn't look like it is for the time being. We'll have to see. But we're also witnessing the revival of the Iranian energy industry through deals like what they did with Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan. That's another thing to factor in. Iranian economy is getting stronger even in light of the issues surrounding lockdowns and artificial restrictions to economies around the world. In light of all that, Iran is reviving industries that were basically dead, courtesy of the sanctions. So, meanwhile, Israel is trying its best not to get run out of town on a rail. And they're, they're succeeding, just, you know, they're always bogged down by internal and external problems that Iran just doesn't seem to have to deal with right now. And it's very interesting to look at the dichotomy between them. So that that's them. But now, let's talk Lithuania, who is pushing for a confrontation in Eastern Europe. So in the continuing fallout between Belarus and its neighbors, uh, its neighbors minus Russia, Lithuania now wants to bring NATO into the equation, and Lithuania is sort of the country that instigated this entire row between Belarus and the West by backing the opposition candidate in Belarus's elections, which again brings me to paint them in the negative light. I know others would maybe see that as a more positive thing, or maybe they see it as just Belarus has illegitimate elections, and you you can think that. But from my perspective, even if they do have illegitimate elections, which they probably do, that's their country. That's not your place to step in and say, this is how we want your elections to go. I don't... It's sort of a a principal thing for me because I believe in self-determination of nations it is not your place to tell other countries how they are to live even if you greatly greatly disagree with how they live it's just not your place so off of that I feel that this whole situation has been instigated by Lithuania doing things that it really had no business doing so that that's sort of why my framing of the issue is the way it is that's my mindset on it but Lithuania the country that started this mess um, has now in light of the fallout between Belarus and Poland over the migrant issue um, which was its own thing between Belarus and Poland uh, which has led to a whole round of accusations of hypocrisy In light of that, and in light of the tensions that have 
been brought up between them in Europe and Russia. Lithuania is now trying to up the ante. Because before, it was just regional. It was a regional dispute between Belarus, Lithuania, and Poland. Poland very quickly took the side of Lithuania back when it was just a dispute over Belarus's elections and who the legitimate ruler of Belarus was. Again, my opinion is that it's not their place to determine that. It's for the people in Belarus to determine that. So, again, that's where this whole thing started, and I think it's important to really keep that in perspective when we talk about where we've gotten to now, because now it's developed beyond what it was just the last time we talked about this. Because Lithuania is now pushing for NATO to get involved. They want to bring NATO into the equation, and again, this is regional. This is just between Belarus and its neighbors. And then gradually, it included Germany and France and then Russia. Russia, who came to the defense of their ally, who was basically getting ganged up on. So, now, you have Lithuania pushing for NATO to come into the equation. And what makes me say that? Uh, the country's president, Gitanis Noseda, has said that NATO needed to adjust its stance toward Belarus. So just openly saying it, NATO has to do something about Belarus. And the reason being that the Belarusian military is becoming increasingly integrated with that of Russia. The integration between those two is another thing we've been observing over the course of this developing situation. Um, and he said that he feared the, quote, total military integration, end quote, of Belarus into Russia's military, which would basically seal the deal between, it would seal the deal on the Union state, and at that point Belarus would become a geographic expression within Russia, and at that point you're just dealing with Russia. But all the actions that are being done against Belarus only seem to lead to that conclusion. Because what else is Belarus going to do? They, they can't fight you by themselves. They're going to bring Russia in. They're not the aggressors here. All of these issues have been brought to Belarus with the exception of the migrants. The migrants were the exception. They didn't necessarily have to go through Belarus. Belarus just didn't stop them from going. So... Even then, the issues with the migrants, not Belarus specifically, and I think it's also important to keep in context that more migrants are coming into Europe through multiple other channels, uh, figuratively and literally, through Spain, through Italy, through Greece, uh, to the point where Britain has issues with migrants. Now, that one's a choice because Britain's an island and they could use their navy, but they uh, decide not to. They could use their air force, but they decide not to. They, they could do a lot of things, alright? This doesn't have to be an issue for Britain, but for Europe, um, it's, well, I guess for Europe it also doesn't necessarily have to be an issue, but it's harder for Europe to defend its coastline than it is for the British, and just by the nature of their proximity to where these people are coming from, in combination with the fact that Europe is basically a wall between Britain and the Middle East, it's more optional for Britain than it is for Europe, but even within Europe, it's kind of a choice to have this issue, but they've chosen to have this issue, and they have migrants by the thousands coming into Europe from multiple other angles, but only when they come through Belarus do they seem to be a problem, so even then, it seems to me that it is not Belarus who is instigating the problem. Why would Bela even if Belarus funneled the migrants to the Polish border, what reason would they have to believe what reason would they have to believe that Europe wouldn't be okay with that? They let migrants in through every other area. They let them in through Spain, through Italy. Well, less and less Spain. Spain is cracking down on that. But they let in the migrants through everywhere else. So why would Belarus even if they deliberately had those migrants by the thousands come in to Poland, what reason has Europe given 
that would make Belarus think that that would be a bad option. Because Europe says that they're wide open. Europe says that they are open. So if Belarus is getting migrants, then the natural thing to do, if you don't want them, is to send them to the place that says that they do want them, Europe. And that's what's instigated this problem. So again, even there, it seems to me that Europe has instigated this issue, not Belarus. So on multiple fronts here, you have Belarus who is on the defensive, which the natural response then is to rely on big brother Russia to come help because you're getting ganged up on by people who really don't like you and come to their aid Russia has done. But now you have Lithuania asking for NATO to get involved because none of the countries on the border with Belarus and Russia can handle Russia alone, let alone Belarus and Russia together. They can't handle that, so now they want NATO to step in, or at least Lithuania does. Uh, Nazeda, uh, he's also quoted as saying that this, he's referring to the integration between Belarus and Russia, he says, this brings new challenges to NATO, and NATO should accordingly adapt its plans, strategy, and tactic to be ready to respond. And that's the quote. So they've cornered Belarus diplomatically. Belarus turned to its natural ally, Russia. Russia, uh, Russia backing, tip, tip the scales. So far in the Union state's favor, as that's basically what I'm going to start calling them now, the Union state. It's tipped it so far in their favor that the only logical response that Belarus's neighbors can pursue um, while they're still trying to go after this specific angle of being confrontational with Belarus, the only thing that they can do to continue being confrontational is to up the ante and bring in their own alliance, which is NATO. Meanwhile, Belarusian and Russian jets are doing joint patrols in the skies over the border. So the integration gets deeper. The response from the instigators of the issue, Europe, was not to step back and let Belarus have their political system, not to step back and say, we invited the migrants in. They're basically doing what we said we wanted by sending them here. The response was not to step back. The response was to up the ante. And this is, gonna, this is going to seal the deal on the Union state. There probably won't be a Belarus in 10 years. There's going to be just Russia. That, that's what it looks like with the course that we're on right now, courtesy of countries starting issues that they can't finish, but not recognizing that they can't finish them. So Belarus and Russia are getting closer together. And the issue is going to be unresolved until it is. And it'll be resolved when they just can't do anything about it anymore. That, that That's going to be the way that this gets resolved. So it's a very interesting situation. It evolves every week. I, I swear every week I say I'm not going to talk about this next week. And then some new thing happens. And it's different enough from what we talked about before to where now I can talk about it. And it's important enough to where I do. But that's Belarus, the developing situation there. Very interesting, very dangerous. Uh, that's the game being played. I think the instigators are going to lose. And I think Belarus is going to become a geographic expression within Russia. Ukraine will probably end up that way too. And once but Russia has Ukraine and Belarus, I imagine the look, the outlook on Russia and being hostile towards them is going to change dramatically because a lot of countries are going to say, oh, it didn't work. Now they're huge and they're upset with us. Maybe we should repair relations with Russia. That's where I see this going, especially with the heightening tensions in Ukraine. Because you, the situation in Ukraine is getting worse, and there are constant fears that there's a Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border, which there actually isn't really. They're pretty far away. They're close enough to where they can get there if they really wanted to in 
a relatively short period of time, but they're not on the border. So there is a buildup of Russian troops in their western district, but they're not on the border, even though a lot of outlets and people in government are saying that there's a buildup. And this is being used as a justification to say that we need to have a stronger response in Ukraine at the same time that there's talk that we need to bring NATO into the equation for Belarus. And all this, to me, seems like, yes, let's hand over Belarus and Ukraine to Russia. That's an excellent idea. That, that's what I'm hearing when I hear this talk. Because let's assume that both sides are committed to war. Let's just assume that. Let's assume that the Russian troops actually are on the border with Ukraine. Let's assume that everybody in NATO honors their alliance when either Belarus, well not Belarus, when Poland or Lithuania calls in the Article 5. Or let's just, let's just assume that Ukraine operates like a member of NATO and they ask for NATO to get involved. One of the NATO countries obliges and then calls for Article 5 which wouldn't need to be honored, but other countries. Let's just assume that everyone honors it anyway, even though it's an offensive, not a defensive. It's offense not, not being attacked. You're doing the attacking. Let's just assume all that. And assume everybody commits themselves to war. Who's going to get to the border between Poland and Belarus first? Who's going to get to the border between Poland and Ukraine first. Who's going to get there? Who's going to get to the border between Romania and Ukraine first? Who's going to get there? Is it going to be NATO or is it going to be the Red Army? Because we're, we're assuming that Russia's army is on the border with Ukraine. We already know that they're flying jets over Belarus and airspace. We talked last week about them doing a paradrop of troops um, to stations and positions within Belarus, and Belarus is perfectly fine with it. So the Russian Air Force and their airborne troops are already operating with impunity in Belarus right now. And they have rapid deployment capability that they have exercised and are practicing right now. So if we're assuming that everyone's committed to what they say they're committed to, and everyone follows through, who's going to get to the border first? Is it going to be NATO? Or is it going to be the Red Army? I think it's going to be the Red Army. I genuinely believe it's going to be the Red Army. I don't believe Russia's omnipotent. But they're close by. Their army is unified under a single command. And they already practice and demonstrate their capabilities of rapid deployment over just the past year. Over just the past year. Ukraine cannot beat the rebels with minor Russian backing. Ukraine would die if Russia's military stepped in officially. Ukraine would die. Would Poland be able to beat Belarus? Who knows? Would Poland be able to beat Belarus with Russian military backing? Absolutely not. Poland's not going to win that fight. Lithuania. Poland and the Baltics combined, they're not going to win that fight. They're just not. And all Belarus has to do, all the rebels in Ukraine have to do, is hold the line and let Russia do the offense. And that combination is going to be a killer. Because the rebels in the Donbass have demonstrated they can do exactly that. They can defend themselves. Russia has demonstrated their offensive capabilities. They can rapid deploy to someone else's borders in a matter of days if they really want to. Who's going to get to these borders first? Because let's assume that United States goes. And let's assume that there's popular support to do so, which there isn't. Who's going to get there first? The Russians or America? By the time America gets to Europe with reasonable numbers, by the time we're able to take the troops we have in Europe already and put them together into a, a fighting force... Russia's going to be halfway through Ukraine 
and there will be a land connection between Belarus and Kaliningrad, the little Russian enclave northeast of Poland. And the Baltics are going to be cut off from land reinforcement, meaning you're going to have to sail ships into the teeth of Russia's anti-ship missiles and their air force. That's a losing proposal. That, that that's a losing proposal. And who who's gonna fight? Who's gonna fight? Poland is willingly backing Ukraine, but the Baltics and Poland are simultaneously the least likely to commit troops to fight Russia because they're on the border. They're gonna be the ones who have to fight the fight first. Will Germany send troops? Uh, if we're assuming that everyone honors their alliances, we can say that they will. But now we have to factor in the state of disarray of everyone's armies because everyone was dependent on U.S. protection. Everyone's dependent on U.S. protection, and the only one with a functioning army right now in Europe is France. France has a functioning army. France is on the far end of Europe. They're going to be among the last to show up to the battle, even if we assume that everyone honors their alliances. By the time NATO can mount sufficient counterweight to do a proper counteroffensive, Ukraine's going to be gone, Poland's going to be uh, fighting for their lives, and the Baltics are going to be getting eaten alive just based off the proximity of where everyone is. Poland cannot fight the Red Army by themselves. Romania cannot fight the Red Army by themselves. We're talking having to coordinate an alliance of multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual armies to fight a unified command that speaks the same language, takes the same orders, and has the same directives. And they're, they're pursuing this under the same leaders. At most, there's two leaders. There's Lukashenko in Belarus and Putin in Russia, and they agree. So you basically have one guy that everyone has to take orders from. That's a, a lot more efficient in terms of the cohesion of the fighting force. That's going to be a lot more efficient, and it's going to be really hard to fight back against that. It's not impossible. It's been done before, but it's going to be really, really hard to do that when hundreds of thousands of men are crossing your border and you're relying on the hundreds of thousands of other men who speak a different language from you and have to come from uh, hundreds of miles away to get to you. I don't think that that's going to be a winning proposal to try to fight Russia and Belarus over this issue. It's just going to be handing Belarus and Ukraine and the Baltics to Russia on a silver platter that may or may not be stained with blood. I think this is a losing proposal. And the natural thing to do would be to step back. Because again, let's go way back to how, this, how we got to this point. Lithuania getting involved and giving support to Belarus's opposition candidate in Belarus's election when the opposition lost. It wasn't their place. And from there we get to this point now where we're talking potential war in Ukraine against Russia and the rebels and potential war between NATO and Belarus over migrants coming through Belarus even though they let in migrants from every other port known to Europe. It's just not a winning proposal, in my view. There's too many holes and too many assumptions have to be made to get us to the point where you're even fighting Russia properly. Because again, I'm assuming everyone honors their alliance. I can guarantee you that Russia will honor theirs. It's a matter of their survival as a state. They have to come to Belarus's aid. They have to protect the rebels in Ukraine. Because Otherwise, they have more NATO borders on, they have more NATO countries on their border. Russia will not tolerate that. I can guarantee you Russia's going to honor their alliance. 
I can I can't really guarantee you that all of NATO is going to guarantee is going to honor their alliance. And even if they do, I can't guarantee you that they're going to be able to fight the war in peace cuz a lot of countries have large sections of their population that are going to be opposed to this. So they're going to have to fight a two-front war abroad and at home just to fight the war. It seems to me like a really really bad losing proposition that leaders in NATO countries are pushing, gradually pushing the alliance towards getting into. And I think it's going to end in disaster if they go through with it. I don't want them to do it. And if they do, Ukraine and Belarus and the Baltics are going to go back to being geographic expressions when people talk about Russia. There, will, there won't be a Lithuania there won't be a Belarus, there won't be a Ukraine, though there's just going to be Russia. The Russian Federation. Or per, maybe they'll rename themselves after they reunify all of the former Soviet states and they'll call themselves Greater Eurasia or something like that. But trying to pick, this seems like the wrong fight, is what I'm saying. No one's ready for this except for the people that are on the defensive, which is Belarus and Russia. They're ready to fight this fight. NATO is not. The countries on the border with Belarus and Russia are not ready to fight this. Ukraine uh, is already on its last legs. They would get toppled the second Russia decided they needed to forward deploy troops way beyond their own borders to cover the flanks of Belarus. Because if you look at a map, you see Belarus juts out from Russia and you have the Baltics to the north. You do have Kaliningrad, which you can sort of cut the Baltics off from, but other than that, you have Romania to the south and this wide open area called Ukraine that NATO could outflank Russia from, and there's talk of bringing Ukraine into NATO. Russia, just out of geostrategic necessity, would have to occupy Ukraine just to keep NATO out and away from Russia's borders. Ukraine would get annexed, Belarus would consent to the Union, and the Baltics would also get annexed. It seems like just the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong enemy. That's what it seems like. But that's that, and maybe that's the end that will... Maybe that's going to be the last time we talk about it for a while. I don't think it will, because it keeps updating... Uh, at least it didn't update as much as Afghanistan did between me writing out my segment and them taking Kabul. But now, let's move on to the last subject, which is the potential for water wars. So, most countries who have disputes over access to water, uh, they get into spats with each other. And recently there has been an increasing sort of attention to the prospect that there could be armed conflict over this basic human need. A lot of people are talking about it. I know Peter Zion did. Uh, and a lot of people are projecting that given rising populations and a drying climate in certain locales, there could be fully-fledged wars fought over water. And so, I thought... Well, let's look into that. And here is my take. My take is that most countries with disputes over access to water will actually not go to war, at least not solely because of the water resources. That's my take. Water access may make it onto a list of <laughs> grievances that ultimately lead to a conflict, but on its own... I feel that there are few instances where I see water rights being the trigger for war by themselves. Again, even considering how essential water is to human life, it's a basic human need. But there are few instances, and among those few instances, there are three that I believe have the greatest chance of igniting into armed conflict. Those three being disputes over the waters of the Nile River, the Fergana Valley, and the Himalayas. The Himalayas makes the list because the rivers that originate here um, 
lead to the Indus River that runs straight through Pakistan, sort of like a, an artery. goes straight through the country. Major population centers are all located on or really close to it. It's really, really important for Pakistan. There's the Ganges River that runs through northern India, I, a.k.a. the most densely populated part of a country that is the second most populous on the planet with 1.3 billion people. So that's a lot of people who are dependent on that water, uh, more than entire countries with multiple rivers. So that, as well as the major rivers of Bangladesh, Burma, Laos, plus Cambodia, as they, those two shared the, the Mekong River, and China. So, altogether, over 3 billion people are dependent on the water originating in the Himalayas, specifically originating from the Tibet region in, north, in western China, not northwestern China. In Western China, all the all the waters lead to Tibet. So the sheer mass of people involved makes disputes over water here uh, a major contender for sparking armed conflict. China is also building dams, uh, uh, lots of dams, along many of these rivers. The Mekong River, for example, has had eleven dams built on it within China alone. So before the river even leaves China, it's gone through 11 dams. Now, however, while I see this region as having a higher potential for conflict over water resources than most others, it actually ranks at the bottom of my list. As most countries uh, don't have the strength to challenge the country causing the problems, which is China. Most of the countries in this region cannot challenge China in an offensive manner to make China stop building dams. And while India is currently the only country who can challenge China offensively to try to make them stop, India has taken a decidedly defensive position on China's expansionist actions. And this is likely out of the reasonable concern that if they were to get into a conflict with China, Pakistan, who just exists on the opposite end of their country and is also more hostile to them than even China is, there's the possibility that if they get into it with China, Pakistan will step in and that puts them into a two-front war on two completely different sides of their country. So, Pakistan existing as a hostile nation to India rules out India being uh, as aggressive towards China as they could be. So, and India is the only country here in Asia's mainland who could challenge China offensively. There's Japan, but Japan is sort of off to the side here. They're not involved in these waters. They, they're an island. They don't have to worry about this. This isn't their issue. So, and they have a defensive military agreement with India not an offensive one, although they could come to India's defense if they wanted to because they rewrote their constitution so they could back up allies. And India is a formal ally, so they could come to India's defense. Will they? Uh, that depends on probably on whether or not India is winning. But maybe the threat of bringing Japan into the war will keep Pakistan out. Who knows? But the geopolitics of countries existing in, in conflict with each other is sort of the reason why India, the only country who can stop China, is not really going as far as they could in stopping China. But there's probably not going to be war there. Even though a lot of other countries are going to get screwed over by China building dams on their rivers, they just can't stand up to them. So there's likely going to be no war here even if there will be mass dislocation due to lack of water. Uh, not, on, not on China's part. They, they have all the water. They have Tibet. So if there was ever a rebellion in Tibet, it will be, they'll bring the full force of the law down on Tibet because they, they need it. Their own rivers originate from Tibet, the Yellow and the Yangtze, and the Pearl River. So Tibet will never be allowed to leave, even though they probably will at some point in the future, like they usually do, but China will do everything they can to keep it. 
So, again, likely no war here. Unless Tibet rebels. That's the only prospect of a real war over water here. The next up on the list is the Fergana Valley. The Fergana Valley is a hot point because of the heightened level of distrust between the Tajiks and the Kyrgyz peoples in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, respectively. A few months back, there was even a large border skirmish between the two that originated from a feud between two small villages over a local well. So, technically speaking, the shooting has already started over the issue of water between these two. The dispute still remains unresolved, and that's just Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan who are getting at it with each other. But if you look at a map, you'll see that the Seer River that runs through the valley goes through Kyrgyzstan, then through Uzbekistan, and then it goes to Tajikistan. And it has numerous enclaves, uh, territorial enclaves, with these three countries splattered between them. So it's not one contiguous border. There's little islands of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan within other countries. It's a mess to look at on a map, but that mess, when combined with the Aral Sea drying up in the region between Kazakhstan and northwest Uzbekistan, means that the entirety of Central Asia is getting hotter, which means there's going to be more water consumption and therefore a higher dependence on the water resources that they already have and are already using, i.e. the Seer River. So this can go south, and it can go south fast, just given what we're able to see now, and given what we've seen before, which was a border skirmish, which is why I see conflict here. However, it won't be allowed to go too far south, because there's this big boy called Russia, who, out of its own self-interest, behaves like a safety net for all the countries in its borderlands. Almost all the countries in its borderlands. So if anything major happened, like a war over water, Russia would step in, mediate the conflict, and probably put the warring parties under a de facto occupation, which would be so successful that it just uh, wouldn't end. And that puts a lid on this region's potential for problems. But the countries, however, along the Nile River, have no equivalent to Russia, who can water down the fighting. They have no China, who is just so dominant that no one can really fight them back. So here, I believe, is the greatest potential for conflict. And get it? No one can water down the fighting? Get it? See what I did there? Look, I'll be here till next Monday, all right. So... Uh, no, I've talked endlessly about my belief that something's going to go down between Egypt and Ethiopia over Ethiopia's Renaissance Dam that has been built on the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile is the main <coughs> tributary to the Nile River in Egypt. Egypt depends on the Nile for 90% of their water needs. Egypt is a country of over 100 million people, so if the river shrinks, we have a problem. Now, I elaborate much more on this in my episode called The Nile Question, and I bring this issue up basically every episode, so I'll leave it alone for today um, and sort of zoom out. Because the thing, the key thing about all these potential conflict zones is that even they, who I believe are at the top of the list, even they are not caused by a shortage of water by itself but they're instead caused by human intervention in the flow of the water in each respective region. Uzbekistan uses the Aral Sea water for their cotton plantations, causing the sea to dry in the first place, leading to the dependence on the Seer River, as I mentioned earlier. China is building dams all across Tibet, screwing over everyone else because everyone else lives further downstream, so they can't really do anything about that. And Ethiopia, <coughs> Ethiopia has built a dam on the Blue Nile and is filling up its reservoirs at a rate that deprives the downstream of large amounts of water, uh, large amounts of the river's water. These issues are not caused by the water itself going away 
or by natural challenges and changes to the climate, I should say, they're caused by certain groups of people whose actions negatively impact other groups of people, and the two don't get along. But even so, water wars, as interesting as the concept may sound, might not be as prevalent as many, myself included, uh, were beginning to think. So we'll hope that's the case, uh, but only time will tell. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.